Hello and welcome back to A Hunger for Wholeness. My name is Jillian Langford and I am the producer of this podcast. On this episode, Sister Ilya Delio and Robert Castro sit down with Mario Beauregard, who has his PhD and is a neuroscientist affiliated with the Department of Psychology at the University of Arizona. Dr. Beauregard is the author of books on the mind, including Expanding Reality, The Emergence of Post-Materialist Science, Brain Wars, The Scientific Battle Over the Existence of the Mind, and the Proof for That, which will change the way we live our lives, and The Spiritual Brain, a neuroscientist case for the existence of the soul. And if those titles didn't tell you enough, Dr. Mario Beauregard does a lot of work on neurobiology, emotion, mystical experience, and mind and matter. And in this episode, Mario explains how mystical experiences led him to his work in neurobiology. They talk about what is consciousness. They talk about what it means to have a career as a neuroscientist. And we talk a little bit about the history of science and religion and how science and religion can lead us to holism. This is a really interesting episode where we talk science and religion at an incredible depth. So take a moment and sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of this two-part interview with Sister Ilya Delio, Mario Beauregard, and Robert Nicastro. Mario, thank you for taking the time this afternoon. I'm sitting here with your book, Expanding Reality, Post-Materialist Science. So your work is fascinating and very, very current. And both Robert and I are very much interested in the questions of mind and matter and new materialisms. We're both theologians, but um, Mm -hmm. approaching theology from process theology and new materialisms. Okay. So I want to, you know, maybe just begin with a very, very basic question. What drew you into neuroscience? Personal mystical experiences. Oh, really? How interesting. Ah. Yeah. And and they started when I was a, a kid. The first one, the most important one, one of the most important ones was uh, when I was eight years old. Do you want me to summarize the... Yeah, briefly. Just tell us, you know, briefly what... that. Kind okay. Of- so my, my parents, they were farmers, and uh, we were living uh, in a region of Quebec that is called Eastern Township. So it's close with the border, to the border with Vermont. Yeah. It's very close to Vermont. So it was uh, the summer break, and I was um, on the farm, and I had the habit of going to a small forest quite often. And I decided to do that, that day, a beautiful day in uh, July of 1970, (laughs) a long, long time ago. (laughs) So I went in the forest and I crossed a field before that and I saw the the cows and and at at a certain point I walked for a while and and I became tired. I I was only eight years old, I was a a child. So I saw a a huge gray rock, very big, and I decided to sat on it. And I did. And uh, sitting on, on this big gray rock, I was able to watch all the trees and I was able to see the, the fields, you know, uh, farther. And all of a sudden, it's like if the trees became alive, but alive. And uh, it was the first time I was experiencing that. And everything was alive and the grass and uh, 
of course, the, the cows and everything. But I realized at that moment, I had a, a big insight that everything was united within uh, a huge system. You know, we were all part mm. of the same thing. So I didn't have the words at eight years old, but um, I realized that my small self was also part of this huge system, this totality. Wow. Hmm. And after that, I received like a, a download of information. I realized that I would become later on, several years later, a neuroscientist. I didn't have the word, but somebody who studied the brain hmm. and the, the, the main goal of my existence was to contribute to the demonstration that the mind and the, the soul and spirit are not identical at all with the brain itself. Right. That yeah, is fascinating. So I mean, um, I, I will, especially for an eight-year-old, my first degree is in neurophysiology. So I was oh, in spinal okay. cord physiology, but oh. very, very interested. In fact, I did a master's degree on Elleville when it first came out on schizophrenia, the dopaminergic basis of schizophrenia. Oh. So I, oh. too, was very fascinated by questions of the brain. So, okay. so we do have that. But what's so interesting about your experience, and I think, you know, I, I myself have had not that experience, but, you know, similar type of experiences. And I bet, you know, Others have as well. It's a conscious experience. You're very right. aware. It's a level of unitive consciousness. Mm -hmm. And yet, in a way, it's certainly irreconcilable with just sheer matter, you know, sheer materialism. It raises the question, what is consciousness? <laughs> well, yeah. it's, it's a complex question. It depends on who you, are, you ask. Because, you know, psychologists will use or neuroscientists will use certain definitions. When I was working as a neuroscientist at universities, I'm, I'm now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not in the academic world anymore. I'll explain later what I'm doing now. But it was uh, used as a synonym of awareness, to mm -hmm. be aware of. Yes, right. And awareness of what's going on internally in your head or what's going on outside of the, uh, the confines of the body, you know, in terms of perceptions and so on and so forth. So that was the, uh, the working definition that I, I've been using for a number of decades. But today, um, you know, we can define consciousness also as an attribute of what I contacted when I was eight years old, one of the future. So it's consciousness with uh, an uppercase C. Mm -hmm. In many traditions, I don't like that because they all uh, people will reduce, you know, the, this primordial principle to consciousness mostly. So they will say it's consciousness or the universe, but to me, it's uh, it's incomplete. It, consciousness is one property or attribute of this. To me, it's a being. And but but you have love, which is as important, unconditional love, you know, you have compassion, you have creativity and, you know, intelligence at a tremendous level and all these attributes. But yeah, that's how I, I see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I've come across recently uh, some work that likens consciousness or, or equates consciousness with light. 
you know, and, you know, photons being without mass and ubiquitous and this type thing. And very interesting. Yeah, but it's, Many of the ancients yeah. spoke of God as light. But to me, it's a it's form of reductionism. Okay. You know? okay. Uh-huh. Because, yeah, yeah, consciousness, there have been studies with biophotons and in uh-huh. labs and things like that. And clearly, these manifestations are, are correlated. They are associated statistically to mental changes and uh-huh. what's going on right. at the conscious level. But to reduce consciousness to biophotons or to me, it's uh, more subtle forms of reductionism, but still it is reductionism. Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, it takes consciousness to really <laughs> make the statement about <laughs> consciousness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which, which is interesting. That's right. And let me turn it over to Robert for uh, your questions at this point. Okay. So it's very interesting what you're saying because you, along with, I think, Rupert Sheldrake, are pretty much mavericks in the sense that you were <laughs> yeah. calling out the ignorant dogmatism of materialist science mm-hmm. and trying That's to right. inaugurate an entirely new, probably ar- arguably metaphysical way of viewing the world uh, mm-hmm. with science, probably as a, the leading the leading directionality of how we can know truth in this new post-materialist worldview. So I'm wondering in a couple of sentences how you would describe this new worldview that you're trying to get the world to buy into, beg investment into. Well, we we use the term uh, post-materialism simply to indicate that there's a demarcation in history. You know, there are a certain point where when we realize that the meta paradigm of materialism is not complete and is wrong, you know, at various places, it cannot explain tons of phenomena related to consciousness and mind. And, but it doesn't tell you, and, and that was done on purpose. We did that on purpose. It's vague. It's, you know, it's non-specific. So what is it to me? I'm a deeply spiritual person. So, I can see that there's a lot of convergence between where the new science of mind consciousness is going and the great spiritual traditions. But that's that's about it. As a scientist, I cannot say more. So, yeah, but I think that uh, we will come to realize that what the mystics have been saying for millennia about the world, the universe, uh, consciousness, and so on and so forth, is quite close to what we're going to discuss. So we're rediscovering, if you will, using scientific methods, what mystics have been telling for centuries or even millennia. To me, it looks, it looks like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like just to just to be very pointed here, it sounds like what you're saying is materialist science is not science. No, it's a it's a belief system, an, an ideology, and you know it, it came to be known as science during the 19th century and a good part of the 20th century. But no, it was. But the scientists were educated that way. They taught. I received this education myself. And so they, they were trying to convince us that, you know, science is about the, what we call the material or physical world. And the rest doesn't exist because we cannot perceive it. And, and so we don't bother. But 
to be fair to the scientists, you know, uh, three, four centuries ago, the church led the scientists to, you know, they, they, they made a deal with the founding fathers of modern science. They told them, you know, the, the philosophers, the theologians, you know that, we're going to investigate the, we're, we're going to take care of mind and consciousness and the spiritual attributes and so on and so forth. And, you know, you'll be busy with material world. You'll take care of the material world. But the founding fathers of modern science, like, like Galileo Galilei or Isaac Newton, uh, Descartes, and all these people, they were deeply uh, religious and spiritual. But after a few generations of scientists, the younger generations, they, they totally forgot about that. And they became uh, materialists and atheists, thinking that that was the way to go. It became like a, a dogma, and it was dangerous to challenge that openly. And I experienced that myself. Mm. Uh, not 200 years ago, 10 years ago, I've been expelled from the University of Montreal. Really? Because of that. Yeah, because they wanted me to do, uh, I was at the medical school, and they wanted me to do experiments in relation with big pharma what's going on and things like that and i didn't want to do that because i knew that we had to because of my uh you know early experiences mystical experiences i knew that that's what i had to do so i decided to follow this path instead and unfortunately for me I, i've been protected by uh open-minded deans and for a while but it came to a point that there was a new administration, new deans and everything, and I was not protected anymore. And oh. they didn't like the publicity that I was getting all over the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, for us, yeah. I did studies of Carmelite nuns, you know, cloistered nuns. Sure. Yeah, like Andy Newbrook. Things Newbrow. like that. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. But yeah. for, for these people at the medical school, it was totally crazy to do that kind of thing. Yeah. It was, you know, they didn't see the, the purpose of doing such a thing and you know the pharmacology big pharma it's closely related to the it's a form this industry is uh, a form of uh, materialism if you will you know from a medical point of view the body and the person is seen as a machine a complex machine so you you try to make disappear certain symptoms using pharmacology chemistry and uh, but it's, it's very basic. And the other aspect of the human being, they don't matter. You know, it's dehumanizing to me. It was, and it still is. But I had to fight, really. It was, <laughs> it was a, a battle. And uh, I when I was a young student, I met a Dr. Uh, Jasper, who was uh, a good friend of Dr. Wilder Penfield. They both created the Montreal famous Montreal Neurological Institute yeah. in, mm -hmm. in the late 20s. Yeah. And I met with Dr. Jasper before he passed away. He was all, almost uh, 90 years old back then. And I told him about how I, I saw things. And he said, oh, poor boy, you're going to have a very suffering uh, career. You will be the black sheep, the maverick. You may be right. That's what he told me. But he said, you don't have the right to say that openly. You cannot challenge them. The time is not right yet for that. You're too early a bit. Yeah. 
so so I was very disappointed in this uh, encounter with this famous scientist. But you know, despite his recommendation, I decided to <laughs> follow my inner guidance and. Yeah, you know. I just reviewed a book called <laughs> After Science and Religion. It's edited by Peter Harrison and John Milbank. But one of their, they do an excellent job on the history of science, the history of modern science. And they say that okay. science is a construction. In other words, the discipline of science was constructed, you know, after the 17th century and largely in the 19th century. And it yes. was done consciously, if I can use that term, by excluding uh, theological, spiritual claims, any kind of claims that would smack of yeah. religion or spirituality. And therefore, yes. there was like, you know, what you might call an agential cut. You know, they literally, they mm -hmm. created the boundaries of what would be considered science. And that is, has been largely problematic for science and religion, because it has prevented, you know, e either side has prevented a true integration of these forms of knowledge in a way that's holistic. You know, the yeah. sense that we're part of a whole, your experience of this whole, this incredible living wholeness. And there's no place to really, really <laughs> deepen that kind of knowledge. I think we're just beginning to turn the corner, but there's a lot of resistance. Oh, yes. A yeah. lot of arguments <laughs> that want to disparage <laughs> that type of thing. And so yeah. I do agree, it's, it's quite challenging, you know, to do so. Would you say, the mind is in the body or the body is in the mind? Or can we even make such a statement? How do we... How do Scientifically, we, we know certain things because I've been investigating the so-called uh, near-death experiences. Mm. But I was mainly interested in one population of people, people who've had clinical death, you know, cardiac mm -hmm. arrest mm -hmm. and... Yes. Uh, you don't breathe anymore, and uh, and if you measure electrical activity in the brain with uh, electroencephalography, after 10 to 20 seconds, after the heart has ceased beating, the EEG becomes totally flat. So there's no uh, electrical activity anymore that we can detect of, and the, the person is considered to be in a state of clinical death. And so... We'll try to reanimate these people uh, very rapidly because it can lead to severe damage uh, at the brain level. The nerve cells will die uh, rapidly. Usually, uh, you know, after seven, eight, ten minutes, it's uh, critical. But what is very interesting is that I met a, a lot of these people. I met these people uh, from various sources. One was very interesting. It's... Uh, the people we need to under uh, to receive a new aorta, you know, they have to be operated, and to do that, usually they will uh, we stop their heart and they will be dead clinically for about fifteen to twenty minutes usually. I know, wow. but these people, we believe in mainstream uh, neuroscience that in, in this kind of context, there's no mind, there's no personality, everything will vanish. But that's not true. I met hundreds of people over six, seven years who've had this type of surgery, but also who've had cardiac arrest, you know, related to different events. And, and many of these people were able to remember that they were conscious, 
really? they knew who they were. They were able to perceive something. So sometimes they will uh, report information that can be corroborated. We call that perceptual corroboration during near death experience or clinical death. They were, so they will say, because I, I had a case like that that I published, the young woman who was operated upon it, she was able to report or she saw the, uh, the surgical instruments. She memorized what the surgeon told to one nurse and so on and so forth. And she knew everything about this. And I told uh, the surgeon, did you know uh, or were you aware? He said, no, no, that's impossible. So that's, Mary, that's just awesome. so we understand, was she under general? She was there, her body was cooled down, so she was in a state of hypothermia. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also hypothermia. So so the, the her heart was not beating anymore. Okay. She was clinically dead. Pull her down and, and then in order to cut her open, they had to they had some kind of anesthesia. Oh yeah, yeah. They have before they have they have anesthesia. Uh-huh. But and, and yet she had consciousness of what was happening yeah. in the room. Yes, memory, or, or she was aware of her personality, and she was able to perceive thoughts. <laughs> so it's uh, very interesting. Wow. Thoughts, you know, thoughts of the, of the nurses, the, the doctors, uh, members of the surgical team. So, so that's this is one example, but there are now we have hundreds of these cases, and so I cannot answer your question for sure, but. What I try to uh, convey in the manifesto for uh, post-materialist science with my colleagues, Sheldrake and uh, others, mm-hmm. is at least we have to recognize that the mind and consciousness does exist. You know, Absolutely. there's a mental world, which is non-reducible to the physical world, you know. Yes. That was the concession. That, that That's what we were hoping for. But that's a big question. You know, there are different views about this. Dualist views and, you know, panentheist views. And, you know, it's, it's metaphysics. It's, I know that uh, to me, uh, there's a, like I said before, there, there's a bigger mind, a greater consciousness, a bigger intelligence, because there's a, it's immensely complex when you look at the, well, only the, the human brain, it's, you have more connections in the human brain than uh, you have stars in our galaxy. It's unbelievable, really. Was it like a hundred trillion or something? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, some- so to be able to conceive that, to, to create something like that, it's amazing when you think about this. It's uh, unbelievable. Uh, truly. Yeah. I have been interested in the way David Bohm's model of implicate order, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. Even bombs, you know, which some people have discredited, you know, they want to be anti-bombium because there's no other quantum potential there. Or, or like you yeah, say, yeah. intelligence or some, <laughs> something the whole that holds the whole together, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the concept of entanglement just as a descriptive mm-hmm. concept is very, very interesting. You know, this because mind and matter are inextricable from one another. You know, you can't. Yes mind and matter really apart so because matter itself may be a form of mind and mind itself may be a form of matter and and yet they're distinct and so you know i often they're distinct for in terms of our mental experience yes Mm -hmm. yeah but not in the absolute we don't know right and that's that's related to our level of perception but 
Yeah, it seems like this. Yeah, two different kinds of phenomena related, interconnected, but uh, one way or another, it takes a, a huge mind to be able to create something like that. I'm totally with you. Robert, you look like you have a question here. Or I have many. This is wonderful. So just about 100 years ago, science really domesticated the brain and understood it as static. Is that correct? Yes, yes. But now we have this phenomenon of neuroplasticity. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you could say a few words about that and whether or not anything is really unchanging of the mind. No, no, it's, uh, but, but it's true that it was another huge dogma of uh, neuroscience, this idea that the brain was a static machine and you had to cope with the brain you inherit when you're born and, and you could do nothing about it. It, it couldn't change. And, it was all false. It was, it was a very strong belief. It's it, like the idea that there's nothing apart. The brain, consciousness cannot exist. The, the, the mind is what the brain does and so on and so forth. And it was the same thing. But in the 1970s, uh, some psychologists, they started to work with animals, rodents, and they stimulated the, the, the rodents, uh, rats or mice. And they discovered that when they do that in cages, the volume of the brain was bigger, larger. So, so they repeated these experiments uh, for several years, and it became clear that uh, clear that the brain could change. And so it started in animals, but then there was the development of brain imaging, and that's what I was using my, myself, like uh, functional resonance magnetic imaging. So you can see the activity of the brain, but you can also use other parameters and you will be able to see the uh, visualize the structure the physical structure of the brain in terms of the white matter the, you know and the the gray matter and all the structures and so using this neuroimaging we discovered that humans too were able of this cerebral plasticity that was it's been called neuroplasticity and uh, so so if you're a taxi driver for instance and it's been uh, shown in, uh, you know, in London, and you, uh, you know, you, London is a huge city. You have to, like New York or LA, and so you have to learn uh, to to get your license. You have to study and you have to learn the orientation of thousands of streets, and and just by doing that for a few years, you increase the size of structure in the brain that is related to memory, but all spatial memory you know, representation within space. And, and since then, we've done hundreds of studies showing that you can transform your brain. I've done that in my lab. Also. It was more related to um, meditation, mindfulness, for instance, and the um, how do you cope with emotions. But we demonstrated that after only uh, eight weeks of practicing this form of meditation, mindfulness, we were changing the, the, the circuits and the, uh, we're changing the structure. We're changing the activity also of this, the, the brain region. So everything changes. So you can create new neurons, new contacts between neurons that we call synapses, synaptic junctions. And we can create new um, networks of neurons, complex networks. So, you know, older networks will vanish, newer networks will appear. and Depending on what you do every day, 
And it's true. It's more uh, powerful when you are younger, but still we can see examples of neuroplasticity all across the lifespan. So people uh, who are 80 years old, for instance, they can learn to play uh, musical instruments. They can learn new exercise. They can, and in doing so, they still transform their brains and their nervous system to a certain extent. Yeah. So, oh. so it's amazing. And so we were mistaken. And to me, that's it's the same thing with uh, mind-brain relationship. Most of your scientists were taught that, you know, that the mind, like I said, is what the brain does. Cannot be anything other than, but now there's a, we're in a transition towards something, a new paradigm because famous neuroscientists who were very entrenched in materialism, they are changing their minds now. They are saying, ah, oh, perhaps we made a mistake, but it's consciousness is too complex and nuanced and sophisticated and poor neurons to be able to create them. So now they are saying, Consciousness exists in the entire universe. Panpsychism. They are more and more open with regard to this this view of the mind-brain relationship. And, and, and some now are philosophers of mind also. Now many of them are becoming idealists. So now it's consciousness everywhere and matter is an illusion. <laughs> I, I know some of these philosophers. Mm-hmm. It's impressive to see the the change, the switch. And I'm very happy. Now I, t- I turned uh, 60 uh, last summer. Very happy. 30 years uh, ago, when I started, t- 35 years ago, it was not inside at all. You know, this switch, it was not even conceivable. Not at all. But things are changing, really. And I'm very happy because of that. I'm, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I'm trying to contribute, you know, to this big change, but I think that it will deeply affect society at large if we can move from a materialist model of the world and humans, society, to something else. Yeah, I think it's already taking place very, very, we're at the beginning of it. Yeah, at the beginning, yes. Yeah. You can see signs of it in various, yeah. various ways, but yes. I fully agree, and I often wonder, like, you know, as we humans, I mean, in a sense, we could say, well, we are, we're unfinished. <laughs> you know, we're in the process of being mm-hmm. created as we create. Yes. And we will become a new type of person, you know, up ahead as our understanding of ourself and our world begins to change. I'm so, convinced of that. That's why I like very much the Art de Chardin. Because he oh, saw that, that, you know, a <laughs> long time ago. He was yes. way ahead of yeah, yeah. So, so I was deeply impressed when I was young. I was reading his books. Oh, yeah. And, and I would have liked to meet him. <laughs> yeah, because he was a scientist, but he was uh, much more than that. He was a theologian. He was a, a mystic. He was a mystic, was... actually. Yeah. 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 You yeah. could read him in the original French, probably. Yes, that's what I did. <laughs> oh, jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to part one of this two-part interview with Ilya Delio, Robert Castro, and neuroscientist Mario Beauregard. Be sure to come back to the next episode to hear the rest of this interview. We'll talk a little bit more about neuroplasticity and how it matters what we think. This podcast is made possible through generous support by our friends at the Fetzer Institute. 
and the hard work of Gregory Hansel. My name is Jillian Langford, and I am the producer of this podcast. Robert Castro and Ilya Delio were your hosts today, and Kate Christensen is our marketing and social media manager. If you want to stay in touch with A Hunger for Wholeness, you can support us by donating a few dollars a month on patreon.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Hunger for Wholeness. And if you want to read more about science, religion, and culture, we have plenty of articles over on our sponsor's webpage. We are the Center for Christogenesis. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again for our next episode.